0: Looking forward to, I've been looking forward to the book of Jude, and yet with with this empty stage and this floor, I feel like maybe I should teach an interpretive dance this morning. I've never done that before. not going to do it this morning either. Made a couple of the elders nervous just then as I mentioned that. Uh, Made my wife nervous as I mentioned that, but... uh, Many of you know, I think most of you know, that we were away on a, on a, on a family visit back east. Our family is not from uh, back east, but that's where most of them seem to be at present. So uh, I don't know if they just wanted to get away from us or what, but uh, we found them. First time my sisters and I had, all my sisters and I had been together in over a decade. So it was, it was good to visit with family. Uh, oh, who am I kidding? You know how that goes. <laughs> no, no, it was. Um... And uh, of course, we people ask, "Well, how was your flight? Did you have?" A, somebody asked me this morning, "Did you have a safe flight back?" No, it crashed. <laughs> <laughs> College kids, they, but actually, you know, I was quite sure the plane landed each time. This particular airline, which will go unnamed, you know, they made really sure. <laughs> I think pilots like to know we got it on the ground. We are on the ground. We make that definite. So yes, we had some good, solid landings. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good that they give those briefings. You know the briefings that they give when you're flying? They still do that. You've, you've heard them all before many, many times, and most people read through them, and, but still, they go through those motions. And one of the things that, you know, the air thing comes down, and, and uh, they tell you, you know, first put the mask on yourself, and then put the mask, if you have to assist somebody, then put the mask on your young child or your husband they said. Uh, also, if you, they have these life vests. if uh, Now, we were flying from uh, Charlotte, South Carolina. No, Greensboro, South Carolina to Phoenix, and then from Phoenix to Portland. Uh, I don't know why we had the life vests at all, but they told us all about the life vests just in case we landed in somebody's pool or something. And, and uh, you know, first again, put the life vest on yourself, and then you are free to assist others there's there's something about that that caught my attention it reminded me that we we if we're going to save somebody else we have to save ourselves we have to be ready ourselves in order to be able to save others and that's really the thrust of the book of Jude. You know, most of you, that we have been journeying through the Bible. And in this last uh, two weeks, we did a lot of driving. We landed in South Carolina. We drove to Georgia. We drove from Georgia through South Carolina to North Carolina uh, to Virginia even touched a bit of West Virginia along the way, and then all that back again to, to take our flight out. So I feel like we did way too much driving in the last 10 days. But, but uh, we, we have been driving this Route 66 image of going through the Bible. As we get to the book of Jude, the 65th of these 66 books, we're, we're almost home. And after you've been gone on a trip, it it's, feels good to be Home or almost home, doesn't it? Well, Jude, Jude is that way. Jude is that almost home. We've come close to home. Uh, In in the in the book of Jude, we're we're winding down. Jude has his eye on the return of Christ. I'm looking forward to Revelation. You've probably not heard the whole book of Revelation. in one sermon before. I'm not sure that can be done, but that is on tap for next week. It's Advent season, and Revelation is all about the coming of our Lord and Savior, so I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. But but Jude prepares us in advance in view of the coming Advent. Uh, Jude uh, prepares us. What do we do? What is this, can I say it, interpretive dance that we're in, in the meantime? Um, I want to go through the book of Jude this morning. First, I want to just get a a couple of the preliminaries out of the way, like who is Jude? Well, Jude, most believe Jude was actually one of the four half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of Joseph and Mary's natural sons, after Jesus' birth, after his, uh, his, his miraculous, um, his virgin birth, then Joseph and Mary did have, have, have children. and They had four sons, apparently. He had four half-brothers. In Matthew chapter 13, their name, there was James, there was a, a Joseph, a Simon, and a Judas, or Jude, whose name means praise. And so he identifies himself here as the servant of Jesus and the brother of James. Uh, we know that his brothers were gathered with the disciples after his resurrection. There in the upper room, his brothers and Mary were with the rest of the disciples waiting for the coming of the Spirit. Uh, we know that the, that, that the Lord Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to James and presumably to others of his brothers as well and uh, so they didn't believe in him during his earthly ministry but they believed in him after his resurrection. Jude probably the half brother of Jesus. Now Jude, Jude writes in threes. If you want to have some fun reading through the book of Jude and it's a short book look for sets of threes. There's a lot of them. I'm, I didn't bother to count them. All people said there were 18, 20, Look for sets of threes, and uh, that'll give you an interesting way that Jude puts this book together. Uh, he, uh, one of those threes I, I, will, I will point out to you here in verse 1. Well, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. We know who Jude is now. This is who you are in Christ. You are called. You are beloved you are kept. Now those are three words that don't necessarily pack a whole lot of punch to you just laid out there like that. Let me put it into an image for you. Imagine you, because I've been visiting family and so forth, imagine that you have a son or a daughter that hasn't been home in years. In fact, they've been living on the streets and it has been rough and you you were able to get in contact with them. And you invited them back home. And they came back home. They were invited. And they're there with you in home again. And you assure them that they are loved. You really love them. And no matter what happened out there, here, at home, loved, invited, and wanted, they are safe. They are kept that's the thrust of those three words that he opens with. He addresses us as God's prodigals who had rebelled and wandered our own way as all humanity has, and yet he has called us, invited us back. He, he, he loves us, and he reminds us, our Father, that he loves us, and that with him we are kept, we are secure, we are safe with our God and our Savior Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace be multiplied to you. There's a few other preliminaries I wanted to get to. What is the situation that he's writing to? Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who... who, pervert or twist the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only sovereign and Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a situation. James said, I want to write you a letter. I wanted to write to the church at large and what I wanted to write about is for the wonderful salvation that we share. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. And that's normally what we want to get together and talk about, isn't it? The wonderful salvation, the wonderful grace of God that we share together and that's a building up thing. But there's something more important on the horizon there's something more important at hand i was reminded of it we actually had planned to sing a different song in coming into the message this morning but the last song that the joy of dance sang that i will fight i will contend i will i will do it out of love it fit that switch in james i wanted to write about this but we needed to change the plan we needed to do this instead there is, there is a threat to the church. There's a danger to the church that, that Jude is compelled to write by the Spirit and to address. So because he is, he is being guided by the Spirit, as we want to be in our conversations with family, with friends, with neighbors, with colleagues, especially at this time of the year when Christ is, is in the air and the topic is out there and we want to know the right thing to say to the right person, not be too pushy and yet not be too shy. Oh, Spirit, guide us as you guided Jude. It was to contend for the faith, and Jude, like like Peter, like John, he doesn't introduce something new to contend against this threat to the gospel that's come in. He he points back. He reminds them to contend, to battle for the the once-for-all-delivered-to-the-saints faith what you need is what you already have what you need is what you've already been given what you need is what you hold in your hands the faith delivered from the apostles and Jude doesn't consider himself one of those what you have been given from the apostles, that body of truth, that's what you need. We don't need version 2.0 or 5.1. We don't need any upgrades. We don't need to download the latest version. What we need is the truth of God that He has once for all delivered to us. This faith, this body of truth, That's what we need. That's what Jude points back to. Uh, Jude Jude warns of this danger of of those who he says in verse 4 were designated for condemnation. Now that sounds like some have been marked out to be saved and some have been marked out to be condemned. Don't read it that way. It is true that God has marked out those he's going to save. But the other side of that, that other people then are marked out not to be saved, in fact to be condemned, is not found in the scripture what this design, what what's translated designated for destruction it's a it's an interesting phrase and different versions of some of you are holding this morning will translate it differently because it's a it's an awkward in the English phrase when we translate this from greek into english it it reads awkwardly no matter how you do it until so you smooth it this way or you smooth it that way and i want to suggest to you a different direction to go with it that i think i think jude in context bears out very much these who have crept into the church, who are threatening the faith that they need to contend for in verse 3, these, verse 4, these certain people who were written about, or whose jud- the judgment of whom was written about, was written beforehand long ago, he says. So the fact that there are those who rebel against God and who rebel against his truth, it has been written before. It's been written long ago. And now in the next, from verse 5 to verse 15 or so of this epistle, of this short letter, for most of it, he reaches back and points back to the Old Testament. And he he gives example after example of those who rebelled against God and against his mercy and against his truth and were judged for it. Those who left their appointed position that God gave gave them and they were held accountable for that so what he is saying is just as then God gave us a record of those who leave his appointed place of those who go beyond, of those who rebel against him he does hold accountable so then these who are resisting, who are rebelling against the gospel who are twisting the gospel they will be accountable for that as well and that's a scary place to be So designated for condemnation, I would talk about their judgment or their condemnation. The condemnation of this twisting of the gospel has been written about before, long ago. He gives an example of the angels who did not stay in their own position in verse Six. Now, what exactly does it mean by that? There's a couple. It probably refers to Genesis six, but exactly what happened in Genesis six, we're not completely sure. Did angels come down and actually live with man and take the daughters of men as their wives? It doesn't seem to quite fit, and yet that's been one popular interpretation. That might be. It might. Whatever it is, we do know. It might be simply that the angels, some of the angels, who joined with Satan in his grand rebellion against God, when Satan said, "I'm going to be in charge. I'm going." to take God's place and there was an attempted coup in heaven by one of the archangels who we know as Satan and he took many of the angels with him about a third from what the Bible says and some of those some of the leaders of that some of those who carried that rebellion too far God has put already into in jail so to speak angel jail and they're waiting for a coming judgment He uses that simply as an example that so even now God is able to bring to judgment those who have resisted and rebelled against him. Well, I wanted to uh, read the epistle. What does this rebellion look like? Because at the end of the letter, he's going to give these examples of the Old Testament. He's going to move back into that, um, saying that is what's happening here. that's like what's happening here this is the same thing as what happened back then so he goes back and forth Old Testament to today Old Testament to today I want to give a couple examples of that just reading through the letter and then I want to get to the end the uh, two two things he tells us then that we must do we must save others or rather we must save ourselves so that we can save others before we get there I want to read through the epistle we've already read through verse 6 so let's pick it up or verse 4 anyway let's pick it up in verse 5 Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, watch this, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Did you know Jesus was at the Exodus? We think about God in the Old Testament. What an interesting way to put it, that Jesus saved them. Jesus was that Passover lamb. That lamb pointed to Jesus, but Jesus was the Lord of glory who led them out in a pillar of fire by day. We think of God in the Old Testament in this generic sense as if Jesus wasn't invented yet. And yet our triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, has been involved in this grand drama of his redemption from the beginning of time until now. Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angel who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So God has already given examples that he will judge sin and rebellion. God will judge godlessness. When people determine that we're not accountable to God, we're not going to live toward God, we're going to go our own way, we're going to do what we want to do, they will be held accountable by the only sovereign for that. You get in like manner, these people, now we're into today, also relying on their dreams or false prophecies, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones, the angels or the messengers of God. But even the archangel Michael, now he contrasts, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So this is something we don't have in Genesis. We don't have this account Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy. We're not given that picture, but it, but it, but it comes out of Old Testament Jewish tradition that, that this conversation went on. And, and that Michael did not rebuke the devil, he left that to the Lord. That Michael didn't assume more power into his own position, he rather relied on God, who is the sovereign, to deal with this, this usurper, the devil. The Lord rebuked you. But these people, they blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Wow, that's an interesting phrase. It's a colorful phrase. Jude is a bit of a poet. He he sounds a lot like an Old Testament prophet. There's a lot of that poetic, artistic expression. He 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 talks about uh, those who, in the same way as what happened before, they. also they blaspheme they rail against that which they do not understand like unreasoning animals humans created in God's image with wisdom and insight and understanding and logic and rationale or reason acting like unreasoning animals and apart from God in society we, we see that. We get glimpses of that in our society today, don't, don't we? And we're stunned when people, whether they are young or old, act like animals and so devalue human life, taking the lives of others and themselves. How can this be? Why can this be? How? It doesn't make any sense to us, and it doesn't make sense. It's unreasoning. And the kind of behavior that we see in society today, just People having a hunger, having an appetite, wanting to fulfill this desire, or this so-called need, and they just pursue it. That's what he's describing right here. It's not new to our generation, although we're seeing a resurgence of it in our generation, certainly. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. Now he gives again, he, I said he writes in threes, he gives three examples here. They walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Kor's, Korah's rebellion. He compares those that he said we have to contend against for the faith, he compares them to the error of Cain, to the, error, the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and uh, the, the destruction of Korah. So these three Old Testament personalities again from Genesis, Cain, Genesis chapter 4 from Balaam in the book of Numbers which if you get through the genealogies then you can begin to make sense out of some of the stories there and then he picks up Korah's rebellion also in the book of Numbers. So three examples of what's going on there where Cain, remember Cain killed his brother but before Cain killed his brother God came to him. Remember, Cain and Abel came together with offerings for the Lord. Abel's was accepted, Cain's was not. And rather than taking God's instruction as to how for him also to have an offering that was acceptable to God, instead he hated his brother because his brother's offering was accepted and his was not. And instead of bringing in a a, a, a blood sacrifice for his sin, even as his brother Abel had done, he rather spilt the blood of his righteous brother Abel. So he insisted on, Cain insisted on his will. Instead of God's word. Now, um, Balaam's error was, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a prophet for hire. God gives me insights and I give them to people and they reward me for that. They pay me. They they buy me lunch. You know, they they, they put me up for the night in a nice place and, and you know they give me an honorarium and and so he takes his 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 preaching insight on the road and, and he takes it to the land of Moab and Moab says we have these Israelites here and uh, we want you to pronounce a curse upon them, because we know that when you pronounce a blessing, th- then those people are blessed, and when you pronounce a curse, then the people you pronounce a curse on are cursed. We know that happens. We, we know your track record, Balaam, and so we want you to curse these people. But Balaam had a track record, because he was pronouncing a curse on those God had cursed. He was pronouncing a blessing on who? Those, those that God had chosen to bless, and so he was simply making the announcement. He didn't have power to curse or to bless. But Balaam doesn't want to Upset his friend, the king of Moab, because he's paying the bills. He's promised him a nice stipend through this. He's promised him, you know, some 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 coin, and so so Balaam, what am I going to do? You know, well maybe if you and he and he keeps, ble- he keeps blessing them when ba- when the king wants them to curse, and and this goes on and on as you read in the book of in the book of Numbers, and finally he says, well well maybe go way over there, maybe from a long distance away you could pronounce kind of a quiet curse on, and and it never works out. But Balaam is looking for a way to speak God's word, but to keep the king of Moab happy because he wants to get paid. Balaam is pursuing his own agenda rather than embracing God's purpose. Finally, there's there's Korah, the rebellion of Korah. Korah was from the family of the Levites, but he wasn't chosen to be one of the high priests from Aaron's family. Korah wanted more. Korah said, how come they get to offer the sacrifices and I don't? Sounds like your children, doesn't it? How come they get to do that and I don't? How co- it's not fair. I can do that too. I'm just as good as them. If they can offer sacrifices, I can offer sacrifices. If they can offer incense at the tabernacle, then I can too. And Korah and a bunch of his friends, oh, they all join in this rebellion together and the earth opens up and swallows them whole. No, it's in the book. Read it. It's there. They perished in the rebellion of Korah. They perished in the rebellion of Korah because they, they, they pursued their own ambition instead of God's appointment. You see, in one way or another, each of these three are examples of rebellion against God because I want it my way. My will over God's word. My agenda over God's purpose. Or my ambition over God's appointment we do far better to rest in, in God's appointment to, to pursue God's purpose to, to uh, entrust ourselves and to follow God's word as he has directed because that's what he is going to do it says woe to them woe to them these, are, these, these, these people who are following like Cain, Korah, and Balaam they're hidden reefs in your love feast they're in amongst you they feast with you without fear shepherds feeding themselves isn't supposed to be that way waterless clouds clouds are supposed to bring rain isn't supposed to be that way swept along by the winds fruitless trees in late autumn and the apple trees are supposed to be loaded in late autumn and there's nothing trees that are twice dead uprooted There's no fruit coming from them. Wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame wandering stars for whom the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved forever. He's quite a poet. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied saying behold the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such ungodly ways and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against. There's a key word through there. Did you catch it? Ungodly. Ungodly. Ungodliness, ungodly. And I've told you before, don't think of ungodly in the sense of particular behavior. Think of ungodliness as anything that presses forward in life, and it may be wonderful ambition and success, and yet it is a pursuit of life without reference to God. That is living without hope and without God in the world. That is ungodliness. To pursue my own will over God's word, to pursue my own ambition over God's appointment, to pursue, per, to pursue my own agenda instead of God's purpose is godlessness. And that's the problem here. That's what he is confronting. And there, there, there are folks within the church, Jude says, that are pursuing their own will instead of God's way and God's word, their own plans instead of God's purpose, their own ambitions instead of God's appointments, God's call. That's, that's the situation he's warning against. Even folks within the church playing the religious game, but like Paul says, uh, having a form of godliness, a form of religiosity, but denying the transforming power not growing in Christ, because they're not truly born again. They're just religious and among you. They haven't believed in Christ as their own Savior. They they, they haven't submitted to him either as their only master. They still want to be master of their own vessel. And so Enoch warned about them as well. The Lord is coming. These are grumblers, they're malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. He separates himself from the apostles. I mentioned that. They said to us, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. There's that word again. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you. Now here it comes. Here's the two exhortations, and there are two. There are two things that are described in three ways. Two things, each described in three ways. First thing, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, faith praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. There's the command, waiting for the mercy. So there are, there's one command, keep yourselves in the love of God. But you, in the midst of this godliness raging around you, what are you supposed to do? Keep yourselves in the love of God. How do I do that? I don't know. It's a good thing he told us he gave us three what are called participles to explain what he means by keeping yourself in the love of God which is keeping yourself in in the awareness and the the uh, focus in the embrace of God's love for you keep your eyes on God's love for you don't be distracted don't be drawn aside don't be discouraged so that your eyes are cast downward and you grumble through life just keeping your head down, trying to avoid any hits. No, no. Keep yourselves in the midst of God's love for you. Keep your focus there. How do I do that? How do I keep my eyes open? How do I keep my head clear? How do I keep my heart right and focused in the right direction when there are so many things clawing me down? That's what Job's telling or, or I keep saying Job. Jude. Jude is telling us. That's what Jesus is telling us, and he he gives us three keys to doing that. The first is building yourselves up in your most holy faith. By building, by praying, and by waiting, those are the ways that you keep yourself focused on the love of God. Those are the ways that you keep yourself immersed in God's love for you. These are the ways that you put your life preserver on first, so that you can then be able to help someone else. Too easily, we are too discouraged and thus too deflated that there is no hope leaking out of us for the people around about us who desperately need it from us. If not from us, then who? And yet we're so discouraged by the situation around us ourselves that there's no hope leaking out. There's nothing to see, nothing to be encouraged by. Building yourselves up. Keep yourself focused on what God has done for you. Build yourselves up. Keep reading. Keep reminding yourselves on what God has done for us. Every day spending that time with the Word. When I don't. When I neglect it. It's evident. It's evident to me. It's evident to those close to me. Sooner or later it will be evident to all of you. We need to keep building. It's not, okay, I was saved, got that ticked. I have a home in heaven, wonderful. I got a mansion just over the hillside. That's, that's great. I can just go on with life now. No, this is life. This is what life is really all about. Finally, our eyes are open. I want to keep them open. We need to keep reminding ourselves, filling ourselves, going a little deeper, seeing a little more clearly that we might be ready for somebody else who needs who knows what from us. Be ready to give an answer, Peter says, for the hope is within you. That's the same thing that Jude is saying here building yourselves up in your most holy faith not like those who are devoid of the spirit but rather you're built up it's like physical training in the marines my son is a marine, we got to visit our marine so that was fun, part of this trip and, and I was just reminded again, I mean, he was talking to to his uncle, my brother-in-law and uh, when, he was, when he was visiting them once he was doing like all these chin-ups marine dues, chin-ups, that's just what they do I, I think, you don't know what else to do it's like Baptists. we don't know what else to do, we take an offering Well, what, the marines, I don't know what else to do they, they do chin-ups, so Nathan could do like 19 of them. Well, his uncle could do, I think, two. So he put up a chin bar, and there it is. He still looks at it now and again as he walks by. He doesn't do chin-ups on it, because he's not a Marine, I guess. But, but why do they do that? What's this whole thing about? Because when you're in the midst of the battle, and you need to be strong and physical fit, you've got to be ready for it, right? That's, 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 that's the same reason when he was going to be deployed to Afghanistan, he's a tank's commander. And tank's commanders, I think, they need to be able to see I think that's important. And Nathan had a, had, had a prescription for his eyes. He wore glasses. And he was, he was pretty blind without them. I can still see you. I can't see you sleeping in the back there without them. But, but I can still see without my glasses. Nathan couldn't really see very well without his glasses. So, I mean, there you are in the midst of the battle, bump, bouncing and bumping over sand dunes in Afghanistan in your tank. And all of a sudden, you know, as a shell lands nearby, kaboom, and it knocks his glasses right off his face, right? Well, now you've got a tank commander that can't see. I'm not sure, but... I don't think that's a good thing. And so what they did is they had him do, the the Marines actually paid for his LASIK surgery before his deployment so he didn't have to wear his glasses so that he could see, so that he would be ready for whatever came to him in the battle. That's the same with us. We build ourselves up in our most holy faith so that we're ready for what we don't know is coming that will test your faith. You don't know what's going to happen this week or next, Will your faith be ready for what's going to happen this week or next? Now, I'm not Joel Holstein. I'm not going to tell you this wonderful thing is going to happen next week. No, it could be downright rotten. It could be miserable. That's the world we live in. We are broken people in a broken world, and bad things will happen. Is your faith ready for that? Build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Praying in the Spirit, our closeness to God reminding our soul, feeding our heart on what God has done for us by our closeness to Him. It's no wonder that the apostles in Acts chapter 6, they said we must give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The Word of God and prayer is the, is the highest priority for the church, and so it better be the highest priority for those who lead the church. Building, praying, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ waiting for the mercy, looking in hope, feeding your faith so that you can look in hope. Remember I talked about prophecy. What the prophets did is they they grabbed hold of the past, they reminded people of what God had done, They, 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 they reminded people of what God had promised, what He was going to do, and in light of those two, what God has done, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, and in light of what God has promised to do, waiting for the coming and the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, in between those two, we live. That's where we're strengthened for, live. Uh, uh, for life. Uh, but with those two pillars of what God has done and what God has promised He will do, between those pillars, we can take on anything. Keeping yourselves in the love of God for us. Building yourselves up in your faith. Praying the Spirit. Waiting for the mercy soon to be revealed. Next week, the book of Revelation. Is that close? Oh, I pray we don't even get to the book of Revelation. How about you? I pray that we don't... uh, uh, Okay, the children have gone to kids' choir, right? Okay, I pray that we don't even get to Christmas this year. How about you? Anybody with me on that? Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Yeah, save me from Walmart and everything else. (laughs) In a godless, sensual, rebellious age, save yourselves, verse 20 and 21, so that you can save others. Look at verse 21, 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, even hating the garment stained by the flesh. There are three categories, three kinds of people that he mentions to have mercy on, to be salvific toward. Save others. Save yourselves. Put your vest on so that you can then save somebody else. Put your mask on first so that you can then help your child, your husband. Save, uh, save yourself so you can save others. Build up your faith, praying in the Spirit, waiting for the Lord, keeping His return before you so that you're ready to save somebody else. Have mercy on those who doubt. There are confused Christians around us. In the midst of this age, there are Christians who themselves have been, have been kind of blown off course, who begin to believe less the Bible and more the wisdom of the culture. Well, this must be right because God's a loving God and if God made somebody like that, it, it can't be that He would judge that then. We are broken people in a broken world. All of us are broken in all kinds of different ways. And yet God's truth is true. And yet... We, we, we extend mercy to those who doubt. We do not embrace the doubt. We do not agree with it and comfort it and coddle it, but we have mercy on those who are doubting in the midst of so many challenges that are raised in our culture to the faith. So the first category, have mercy on those who are doubting, that refers, I'm, I'm convinced, to other believers who have been confused by the godless age in which we live and have begun to believe God's word a little less in the process on one issue or another the next is saving others snatching them out of the fire the expression comes out of the book of zechariah saving them as brands from the fire that the people around us who do not believe in christ our are, are condemned They're not maybe going to be condemned. They are already under God's condemnation. And by sharing them the hope that is in Jesus Christ, by telling them that you have been saved because you believed in Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you, he died for your sins, he died for their sins, by sharing that with them, inviting them to come along with you, to come home to Father's house where they also, having been invited, are loved by God and will be safe they also can be the called, the loved, the kept for Jesus Christ. Because otherwise they are lost. We're saving them out of the fire. So that's people around who are unsaved. And finally, the third one, we save cautiously. We save in fear, cautiously. We We save some in fear of God, not compromising God's gospel to make it easier for them to find their way in. We, we save some in fear. This, this I think he's referring to those that have been contending against the gospel. Those who have twisted the gospel. God's mercy would, would extend to them as well. We can be merciful to them as well. But in fear. We're cautious toward them. We do not want their error to infect others, to infect the church, to injure the faith of some. It's not unlike the Ebola crisis. The first doctor's to rush to the scene of those nations uh, facing an outbreak of Ebola or, uh, as typical, other than the guys who are, the, the men and women who are right there on the scene. But first doctors to flood in were from mission aid organizations. Christian doctors arrive on the scene to, 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 to save whoever they could. And yet they did it cautiously, didn't they? They did it carefully. They came to save in fear knowing the deadliness of this disease, that if they were not careful, they could infect others with it, they could infect themselves with it. And yet still they would devote themselves to minister to these people so infected by this deadly disease, but they do it cautiously and carefully. And so will we. There is nobody beyond the reach of the gospel. Jesus' half-brothers who mocked him in his life, Jude is an example of that. Paul, who persecuted the church before he was born again, is an example of that. Nobody is beyond the gospel, and yet we are careful. We reach out with the gospel of Jesus in fear of God and in fear of the sinfulness of our society, that we ourselves will not be drugged down by others, that we would not um, have others bring, bring their, their, their error, their perspective, and so pollute somebody else's faith. We reach out in mercy, but we do that carefully and cautiously. I said it earlier that I really probably shouldn't do an interpretive dance, and don't worry, I'm still not going to. But our lives are really an interpretive dance, aren't they? our lives, our serving, our having been built up on hope, our focus on God, our faith in God leaking out of us, even in a godless society, in ways that, that spill out toward others, intentionally and sometimes even unintentionally. The way that we react when we're poked, what leaks out of us. The way that we respond in mercy when we see a need. These are the ways that our own lives are a dance that interprets and demonstrates the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Jude would tell us is in this godless age, be lifesavers. In this godless age, save yourselves, building your faith, praying in the Spirit focusing on that blessed hope so that you can save others. Other brothers and sisters who doubt, others who desperately need to hear the gospel and can't wait for you to tell them, and some who are going to resist it but need it anyway. These are the ones he sent us to. Life jackets ready. Let's pray. Father, would you do that over this Christmas season. At a time of Advent when there's Christmas in the air and people are talking about it and thinking about it, there must be an occasion with this person or that who's right now in mind Lord, there must be an opportunity to say something about what Christmas really is for us. Lord, would you grant that? Would you press it upon us? Would you prepare us in advance as we read the story again as we rehearse in our own minds our faith concerning Christ's birth, His coming, so that He could die for us and rise again. Lord, rehearse the story with us so that we're ready in the right opportunities to talk to others about Christmas for real, forever. Lord, give us those opportunities and may your mercy flow out of us may your mercy be seen in us lord this we ask in jesus name and all who agree said amen